Convenience and empowerment. This is how abortion is marketed by Planned Parenthood and its allies. Abortion is framed in terms of rights, but precisely whose rights matter is the question at the heart of America's continuing abortion conflicts. How we talk about rights and whose rights we focus on changes the way that people perceive the deadly procedure that is abortion. Truly, the way that abortion is framed communicates something to our culture. You are only valuable, it's said, that if you are wanted, and someone else gets to decide your worth. Abortion can communicate that poverty or disability might mean that you aren't worthwhile in some eyes. These are tough things to hear. No matter how good the marketing might first seem that wants to sell abortion, we quickly come to see the negative messages that it conveys. How are these messages affecting those of us who do have the chance to live and who have the chance to either stop or to perpetuate the violence of abortion? Sarah Zar is a warrior for life who has invested her career into building a culture of life on college campuses. As a regional manager for Students for Life of America, Sarah equips college students as they build campus chapters, host events, and develop leadership and advocacy skills. Sarah joins us today to discuss the widespread effects of abortion messaging on mental health and self-worth, and particularly among the college students with whom Sarah interacts every day on campus. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life. I am Tom Shakely, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Sarah Zar, a powerful advocate for life from Students for Life of America, and of course, Katie Glenn, Government Affairs Council at Americans United for Life. Katie, Sarah, it's so good to be joined by you both. It's great to be here, and I'm so excited to have Sarah here after I've gotten to know her over the past legislative session here um, in Texas. That's right. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, y'all. It's so good to be on. Thank you. So, Sarah, you and I met uh, a few years ago at a great program hosted by Notre Dame called the Vita Institute. And I know your work uh, over the course of many years now has been powerful in shaping the next generation, shaping some of the ways that we've been talking in the introduction about how people think about these issues at a foundational level. And you're there on college campuses every year sort of engaging with new generations, right? Yes. Yeah. I've been for the last four years traveling all over Texas and the South to train up student leaders to lead the way in the pro-life movement and on their campuses and in their communities. So what have you been finding in working for Students for Life of America, a great um, you know, partner and ally of America's Center for Life and a great uh, voice really for the abolition of abortion in America, for our ability to transcend this, this deadly violence that we're kind of taught to be indifferent to, right? How are you finding uh, that work on college campuses where, you know, if Planned Parenthood marketers are to believe, you know, no one who's young, you know, uh, favors the pro-life position, right? Yeah, that's what Planned Parenthood wants students to believe is that, you know, they're in the majority if they're pro-choice and 
uh, that Planned Parenthood is for young people and kind of their ally, but we know that Planned Parenthood is just selling students abortion, and that's why they're strategically located near college campuses. About 79% of them are located within five miles of a college campus, but we like to say... Yeah, but we like to say our students are five minutes from campus because they often live there or live near campus. And so they can get there and be a better advocate for students. Um, And so Planned Parenthood tries to build this relationship with young people, um, starting even in elementary school and middle school. They go in to build this relationship, which is why Students for Life of America is in middle schools, high schools, colleges, and are having these conversations with young people and raising up leaders. And, you know, I've really found that students want to have meaning and purpose in their life and they want to feel belonging. And so going out on a college campus and talking about this pro-life issue is really central to the heart of human beings and what college students and high school students want. They want to know if their life matters. And so when we're starting conversations on college campuses about the value of human life in the womb, it often leads into conversations about why are humans valuable and do they have Mm. meaning as well? Yeah, it's hard to talk about really any other human rights or or any other law and policy priorities, frankly, domestically or internationally, without being able to talk about the human right to life as that first and foundational right. I mean, Katie, this is what you're doing in state legislatures and with advocates and lawmakers across the country on the state and federal level every day. So I'm curious to, you know, your interaction with Sarah and and kind of what your perspective is on all this. Of course. Yeah. So Sarah and I met earlier this year um, testifying in support of pro-life legislation in Austin, Texas, and most recently saw each other when we were celebrating Governor Abbott um, signing a bill that will um, prevent chemical abortion drugs from being sent through the mail in Texas and, and keep those safeguards in place on chemical abortion drugs, even as the Biden administration uh, looks to remove some of those protections that have been there for 20 years. So I know, you know, we were in Austin and it was such a celebration. You get to that sort of like breath of relief moment. The governor is signing your bill. Um, Sarah, I'd love to hear more about some of the encouraging moments and challenging moments uh, as you interact with students, pro-abortion orgs and lawmakers through Students for Life. Yeah, at Students for Life of America, we have a framework of wanting our students to be involved in the five pillars of effective pro-life activism. And so we're engaging in multiple ways that students get involved and that I get to mentor them through. And so the first one is effective education. And so ourselves and our students, we go out and we start conversations on campuses and schools through some we create you know professional displays that have different information on different topics whether the truth about Planned Parenthood whether um, you know when does human rights begin um, we have our standing with you initiative that we table on for pregnancy resources and so we train our students how to have these life-changing and saving conversations to change the culture's mind and heart about the issue of abortion and encourage students who are pro-life to step up and say that abortion is wrong. And we also 
uh, you know, through that, we face a lot of successes and a lot of challenges to get to your question. And some of the successes are we do change hearts and minds when we're having those conversations. I've had people, um, you know, go through a conversation being completely for abortion. And then after explaining the science of when human life begins and why human life is valuable, they then switch to being against abortion. And so that's one of the ways I've seen successes, but that also brings a lot of challenges because you're putting yourself in a vulnerable situation of students who disagree with you. They can come out and often we've been protested or verbally attacked or oftentimes our displays get vandalized um, and in some cases even physical attacks. And so that's one of the most challenging parts is just persevering and embracing the controversy of that and being okay that no abortion is wrong and I'm just bringing that tension to the surface. I'm not being controversial by talking about this. And I remember really vividly a, a couple years ago, we were uh, tabling at University of Texas at San Antonio and we had these pink crosses in the grass to represent the 911 human lives that Planned Parenthood takes through abortion every day and there were there's a students for Planned Parenthood club on that campus I know a really creative name and they um, came out and were stepping in the middle of the crosses and saying really vulgar stuff like look right there that's my fetus in the ground and um, abortion is my number one king and it was just crazy uh, but we had more conversations because of that because students were coming over to see what was going on and they didn't go and talk to the people that were yelling and going off like that they came over to have conversations with us so we had probably nearly 100 conversations that day and changed hearts and minds and we see that all the time through our education we also yeah that's incredible uh, we also go out and impact the industry through removing planned parenthood ties with schools whether that's telling christian schools not to offer internships and information about planned parenthood in their health centers or removing planned parenthood sex ed curriculum from high schools and our students go out in sidewalk council and you know they've seen success there with turning women towards life-affirming resources and then getting into what Katie was talking about, our students go out and help with public policy. And this year was especially exciting here in Texas. And we were at the legislature all the time. We have our sister organization, Students for Life Action. And we would have upwards of 25 students every time it was a testifying day to go and support pro-life legislation. And we got to see the fruits of our labor in passing the Texas Heartbeat Law and the Human Life Protection Act that will completely end abortion in Texas when Roe is changed or reversed. And then also that chemical regulation that Katie was talking about as well. And so we saw that and students showed up and, and fought for that. And it's challenging because, you know, we've had years where things weren't passed in the Texas legislature and students still kept showing up. And so through those challenges, eventually, if you persevere, and myself and our students have seen that success as well. It's incredible. Yeah, I was just going to wrap up with saying we also engage through rapidly responding. And so students see great success in 
going and showing up whenever there's a pro-abortion presence on their campus or community, whether there's a rally going on or a speaker that they can just go and ask questions of that speaker and pass out pro-life literature there. And then finally, they get resources for pregnant and parenting students on their campuses through our Standing With You initiative. And through that, um, I think one of the biggest successes I've gotten to be a part of with my students is a baby save through a student finding out about the Students for Life group through tabling. And it was a long story, but eventually this girl chose life through several people involved and several students, and I got to hold that baby last year, and that was one of the most incredible successes that uh, has really kept me going through the challenging parts as well. You know, anyone who's done work or volunteered with uh, maternity homes or pregnancy resource centers anywhere in the country, and, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to do that, by the way. There's, you know, uh, about three to one in terms of uh, the number of pregnancy centers, the pro-life pregnancy centers that outnumber abortion businesses. Uh, There's basically one for every county in the country is another way to think about it. So if you've done work with those, you'll know what we're talking about here. But there's a sort of a continuum of care focus on folks who find themselves at a point where they're considering abortion. Uh, We've talked about on the show previously that, you know, in many cases, people are winding up outside of an abortion business, not really because they made a choice to do so. They really feel like they have no other option. They're out of options. And so that's where they are. Uh, They're kind of at the end of the road, uh, truly the end of the road for their child. And, uh, and pregnancy centers and maternity homes and pro-life alternatives are all about showing someone that there can be a whole continuum of care, a whole range of choices, life-affirming choices that can open up new horizons uh, that others, you know, the deadliest nonprofits in America like Planned Parenthood would rather they not know about. Um, But it sounds to me like Students for Life and and all the things you've just described are a great counterpart to that continuum of care that pregnancy centers focus on. You're you're providing a continuum of of activism uh, and a sort of a grassroots engagement. I mean, I love everything you described, and we're going to talk more in a moment, particularly about a, a recent piece that was up on Students for Life's website about an example of one of these, you know, uh, protesters, uh, uh, protestations at a Texas rally. Um, but before you did that, you, you mentioned one of the things, and I, I want to underscore this, uh, you know, this is a family-friendly podcast, but you mentioned something I think we need to underscore, not elide too much. Uh, that at one of these protests, and, and I'm, I've heard and seen this elsewhere too, people out there saying abortion is, is my kink, right? Right. This is, in other words, this is, this is like, you know, you don't need to go on Urban Dictionary or whatever to find out what this is, but they're saying, in other words, that abortion is like their sexual fantasy, their turn on. Uh, this is the natural, logical end point of the marketing that we heard 20 to 30 years ago with Abortion, it just needs to be safe. It just needs to be legal. It just needs to be rare, right? The logical endpoint is the most extreme defense imaginable. That's not even a defense, by the way. It's just, I mean, off the deep end. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, how do you make sense of something like that other than it's just designed to provoke? I I don't know. I think you're right, Tom, that it is meant to be really provocative. It's meant, you know, we hear so much. We heard a lot from Congress earlier in the month when they were looking at some abortion legislation um, that we need to destigmatize abortion. It's just like any other health care. It's like taking a Tylenol. It's like getting your tonsils out. It's not a big deal. 
and they know that that message hasn't been successful. And so now the next path is, well, we'll just shock people. We'll make it uncomfortable so they don't want to talk about it. So they'll just shut up and go home when we make these really provocative statements. And honestly, I think it's having the opposite effect. Um, Barry Weiss had Caitlin Flanagan on her podcast um, not that long ago, and they were talking about the issue of abortion and the Texas law, and they both said, you know, I'm pro-choice, but I'm extremely uncomfortable with people trying to basically gaslight me into thinking that this is good, that there's nothing going on here with the baby, that I should be proud or excited or, you know, talking about it in sexually explicit terms, like any of that, like what you said, you know, abortion is my kink. Like they were like, I'm pro-choice, but I am not okay with people saying things like that. And I think it totally downplays the seriousness of the issue. So I think it's a message that's trying to totally shift us away from what's really going on here, certainly for the baby, but also for the woman and for her family and the people in her life who are grieving the loss of this child and and just distract from all of that. And I think, you know, in the long term, it's it's going to have the opposite effect that they're intending. No, truly. I mean, it's it's like uh, Church of Satan type stuff, right? They're saying that they want to go out and get pregnant and have an abortion. And that's that's their thing. And that's that's where they're at. And so in a certain sense, if that's going to be the public argument, if that's what's going to be put up on the placards outside of the Supreme Court, you know, in December, when it comes to the Dobbs oral arguments, uh, in a certain sense, go for it, right? If that's the best you've got to argue for the culture of lawful violence and self-harm of abortion, then you can make that case. I don't think it's going to be a convincing case. I think if that is the the sum of the case, then it's a 9-0 decision to reverse Roe. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that'll be the argument, Katie, right? But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think this the, the extremism, uh, you know, oftentimes... Uh, you know, can we can be ginned up, right? We can be ginned up by headlines and by social media, and we know that some media companies are out there trying to uh, draw out extremes, trying to to put people in different political camps or different social factions because they know it generates clicks or it generates revenue. This is not one of those situations, right? What you're seeing on campuses, Sarah, and what you're encountering in terms of some of these pro-abortion protesters uh, is truly, I mean, the the at the vanguard of the most radical. Um, sort of social wing uh, of, of the abortion movement. Uh, and you saw some of that in Texas recently. You, you wrote about on Students for Life's website, you know, uh, it was called Wild Pro-Abortion Protesters During a Texas Rally. And I want to quote from that and then have you tell us a little bit more about that. You say in the article, quote, we frequently encounter emotional abortion supporters, many of whom, you say, have likely been hurt by abortion experiences in their own lives. We pray for them to find peace and to demonstrate mutual respect for us as we do for them, unquote. Okay, so Sarah, you refer to these people who may appear to be opponents or enemies um, in a pretty respectful light. I think, you know, in our age of yet of polarization, that alone can be surprising, right? What do you find uh, as you try to engage folks who don't seem to be engaging necessarily? Yeah, I think that a lot of people come from this place of hurt and anger when they're discussing abortion because maybe something has been done to them. Maybe they were forced into an abortion or they had an abortion after sexual assault, which adds a whole other layer of hurt. Um, And so oftentimes I can pick out when somebody's being really angry or getting really emotional that they may have experienced abortion 
and I typically just like to redirect the conversation and I typically just stop and say, you know, you seem to be getting really emotional about this topic and I just want to ask you, have you experienced abortion some way or has a friend, somebody close to you experienced abortion? And it actually gives them the opportunity to kind of stop just yelling and to share what's actually at the root of the things that they're yelling and the anger that they have. And that often works and they're able to I say yes, and then I'm able to just ask, what would you want someone like me to know about your story? And then they can tell me their story, and I can offer them post-abortive resources, but also just have a conversation of, do you really think this is the best option for other people if you're hurting from this still? Um, And often, you know, it's not always going to go that way, but I have had conversations go that way. Um, And oftentimes people too, are just repeating rhetoric that they've heard, especially at protests like these, just a lot of these chants of, you know, my body, my rights, or uh, these divert terms they use is just rhetoric that they're hearing, and they haven't actually thought about those terms. And so just through asking questions, you can really help people to think what they're actually standing for. And so asking them, you know, have you ever thought about the other body involved, if it's her body and her rights, what about the other body? And just asking them, have you ever considered it? And maybe they'll say no or they don't care. Um, but asking them that, and then you can have a discussion about the human life that's inside the woman and how we should love both of them and the type of care needed for both of them. It was an amazing thing, too, at the New York Times in a headline earlier this year covering some of the stuff going on in Congress and from the White House. They had a headline out, and it said, From cradle to grave, Democrats move to expand social safety net. And the subhead for this piece uh, contained an incredible line in it uh, that you wonder, was it a was it a pro-life person at the New York Times? Was just was this uh, actually reporting that just slipped through some of the, uh, the ideological filters? But the subhead on this piece on new social policies that are being advanced, it says the $3.5 trillion social policy bill that lawmakers begin drafting this week, uh, again, this was earlier this year, would touch virtually every American, comma, at every point in life from conception to old age. This was in the New York Times. At every point in life from conception to old age. And so this is an example where, you know, occasionally, you know, you have, you have a, a slip where you're honest, even though you don't want to be. Uh, in New York, the New York Times case, that means that they actually inadvertently on the pro-life issue uh, advanced a pro-life reality, which is that life begins at conception, right? And the, the, to their credit, the bill that was being considered uh, in Congress uh, took account of that reality and tried to figure out what does it look like to support people. And it wouldn't have been exactly what I think many people would recognize as a pro-life um, you know, law or policy coming out of that bill. But I think the intuition there uh, from whomever the editor was, the New York Times who wrote that, was correct, you know, and realizing that the messaging is there, the intent is there truly to provide a spectrum of choice holistically across life. Uh, and when they're not talking about abortion, suddenly it becomes a lot easier just to acknowledge that, right? Uh, and I think, you know, what you're describing in terms of, of helping invite people out of that, right, and think about it in a different way, uh, can be a really helpful and compelling way to do that. Yeah, and, 
you know, that even that quote really shows that we have a lot of common ground with people on abortion, even if they disagree and think abortion is right. And that's something else we like to do in conversation and that I train our students to do is where can you find that common ground? And so whoever wrote that article obviously has a lot of respect for human life. And so agreeing with them, like, yeah, wow, it sounds like you really care about all human life. And so then why do you think abortion should be legal and or an option? And sometimes, you know, it's, again, people might think that the most compassionate solution to a problem that humans are facing is abortion. And so why they value human life, it might be, well, I just don't want them to suffer. I don't want them to go into poverty or go into this rough situation. And I like to just point out to people, wow, like it really sounds like you care about human beings and you really want what's best for them. That's right. Well, the cynic in me has to point out that the particular bill that they were writing about um, does try (laughs) to expand funding for abortion at the federal level. Um, So impacting babies uh, between conception and birth would be something that bill would do. But (laughs) your article um, that I would really encourage everybody to read uh, is very hopeful. And you say the future is anti-abortion. You know, we agree with you, but could you explain to our audience what you mean by that and and what gives you confidence in a pro-life future? Yeah, I do see that the future is anti-abortion. And what we mean by that is we're preparing for a post-Roe America. We see that things are changing. More pro-life laws have been passed in the last five years and even this year than ever before. And we see an opportunity now in the Supreme Court to even talk about abortion in December. And so we see a poster America coming. We've been preparing that for that even before people thought it was a reality. You know, people used to look at us and laugh that we were kind of just the young people that think anything is possible. Like when we would say a poster America, um, we would you know, people weren't ready to hear that term when we were using it and didn't believe us. Uh, We were kind of just like, oh, yeah, that's cute. Uh, But the nice thing about young people and whether that's a lot of our staff is young, but our students is we do believe the impossible and we, you know, weave this faith of we can do this with maybe ignorance, but it works and we actually accomplish the goals that we set out to. And so we've set out to create this future that is respectful of all human life even in the womb and we see other issues in our day that people think it's good to be anti-something and so we've embraced this term of anti-abortion because we want to be rid of something that's wrong and so you know it's good to be things like anti-slavery or anti-human trafficking or anti uh, racism, all of these good things that it's good to be against, it's also good to be against the intentional killing of human beings. And so we want a future that is anti-abortion. And we're creating that on schools and campuses, but also in communities through our abortion-free cities campaign. And again, the campaign for abortion-free cities really points out that we want to free cities of things that are harmful. You know, there's been campaigns to free the city of gang violence or free the city of, you know, any other thing that's wrong. And so we want to free cities of abortion violence. And we're 
came up with this whole strategic campaign to take political tactics that we learned in the 2020 elections when Students for Life of America mobilized to help elect pro-life leaders. And we're using those same tactics to now not advance a political cause, but to go door to door to start conversations about abortion and offer life-affirming resources um, through our Standing With You initiative. And so we actually go up to the door and ask them if they've heard about the pregnancy options in their community and if they'll spread the word and if they've heard the, about the abortion facility in their community and what it's doing. And so we have that huge campaign, again, having a stepping stone toward this future that's anti-abortion and actually creating that future. I think this is so powerful what you're describing, partly because we have just kind of pivoted from speaking about what's happened in Texas and and this rally in Texas, demonstrations in Texas, and and the powerful witness of of Texas's advocacy through SB8, its heartbeat law that uh, is still, you know, it's winding its way through courts, it's it's under attack. Uh, Really, there's not clarity long term about what's going to happen to what Texas has done, you know, so long as Roe v. Wade remains the law of the land, according to the the robe justices on the Supreme Court. But for now, it's saving lives, and it saved, you know, hundreds of lives. It'll have saved thousands of lives, assuming it stays in effect. And, you know, e- even if it's enjoined permanently, you know, tomorrow, there will be, say, a 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 people, depending on, on the timing, who will be alive in 10 or 15 or 20 years and they'll be able to point to the the impact even at just a window of time and this is the worst case scenario right even in just a window of time to say i'm alive in part because my state texas where i was conceived cared enough about me to do something to try to protect me and to protect brothers and sisters like me and I think that's a powerful witness when you're talking about what, what cities and, and other jurisdictions could do, right? For, for a city uh, or a locality to think of itself and to realize that it can try to chart its own path, right? We don't need to kick everything up to the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. All right, so Sarah, tell us also about you know, what's happened recently in Lubbock in terms of, of you know, we've got abortion-free cities, but then you've also got sanctuary cities. Tell us about the difference between these two and what's happened there in that place in Texas. Yeah, so we are hoping that our campaign for abortion-free cities will eventually prepare people's hearts for more pro-life leaders to get elected in those cities and to make those cities completely abortion-free through both resources, but also making abortion illegal in that city. And we've seen that happen um, by partnering with the Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn Movement. Um, Specifically, we did a lot here in Lubbock, Texas, uh, but there's a lot of cities around Texas that are now making abortion illegal in their city through making it so that abortion facilities are not allowed to operate in their city. And so this is another way where in Texas we're getting creative of what can we do under the current Supreme Court rulings to still end abortion in our city and in our state. And so students mobilized in Lubbock to start going to city council meetings to ask them to make their city a sanctuary city for the unborn by making it so that Planned Parenthood couldn't open. And at the time, we knew Planned Parenthood wanted to come back into West Texas because Odessa used to be the, it had the highest abortion rate per capita 
than anywhere else. And it had been closed down in Odessa and they wanted to move back in into West Texas and they chose Lubbock. And so students for about a year leading up to that went to their city council to try to say, no, we don't want this in our community. You can stop it by making our city a sanctuary city for the unborn and saying that we won't have a Planned Parenthood or other abortion facility operate in the city of Lubbock. And the city council didn't listen despite us and the students and other pro-life organizations and community members in Lubbock rallying every single time the city council met. And we finally got it on their agenda to vote on and the city council struck it down. So we then cut the students and at there's a Students for Life group at Texas Tech University and other students mobilized to get petition signatures to get the issue on the ballot. And so in May, the city of Lubbock voted whether they would allow abortion facilities in their city or not. And we planned Students for Life action. We planned a deployment of students to go and door knocking both those students in Lubbock, but we brought students from all over Texas and knocked on thousands of doors and did texting and phone calling to make sure that the city pass that ordinance and we saw success with that in May when the city did say that we cannot have abortion in our city anymore through that ordinance and the Planned Parenthood can't do abortions anymore that just opened that's incredible what's so oh sorry Tom no go ahead Katie <laughs> you say what's so awesome about um this story from Lubbock is that this is a community that's really centered around a major university Texas Tech and you know, Planned Parenthood and abortion businesses want to come into a community like that because the product they are selling, abortion, they are targeting at collegiate-aged women. And it was those women who said, we don't want this. They totally rejected it. They went to the city council. And I think, you know, that's really inspiring and shows that, um, you know, Planned Parenthood says that there is this demand that is decreasing all the time as we see the number of abortions fall. You know, their market share is increasing because the total number of abortions is decreasing. And Lubbock is such a good illustration of that, of women who are the exact people that abortion businesses are trying to sell that product to, totally rejecting it and saying, not in our community. Yeah, you know, some of my students who testified at the Texas Capitol on the chemical regulation bill as well, they talked about how, you know, the abortion industry is trying to sell this product to me and saying that abortion and birth control and all these things is what's best for me as a student and as a woman, but I don't want the product that you're selling. And I don't want my campus and my dorm room to be turned into an abortion facility by you offering chemical abortions at my campus or through the mail. And so it was the same thing here, like you're saying in Lubbock, where the students and in, in, they were the ones standing up and saying, we don't want what you're selling and what you're offering, because we know that the current abortion model is that the person, you know, they're, they're going to profit off of selling that abortion. And so how can they actually counsel a woman about her needs if they're just trying to sell a product? Um, and it's that delicate moment, and it's really a conflict of interest that puts that woman's true needs in last place and just tries to sell their product of abortion. Um, and that's why 
our students, you know, work with our Standing With You initiative to say, hey, we actually want to stand with you and offer real solutions to the problems that you're facing, whether that's through an unplanned pregnancy and you're in college and just don't think you can get your education and have your baby. We want to help you do both and empower you that you can do both. Sure. Um, one of the reasons, Sarah, that I really wanted you to come onto our podcast is because you and I were on a panel together at the Texas Values Conference in Austin, and I was really struck by some of the things that you said about um, some of the psychological harm of abortion, not just to women who have had one, but but to our culture and to young people in general. You know, we talk a lot about the obvious physical harms the abortion industry does to children and to women, uh, but the psychological and spiritual effects often go unnoticed. Do you think that the prevalence and acceptance of abortion in our society um, has played a role in the widespread decline of mental health around young people? And how, um, how does abortion impact how young people see themselves in the world? Yeah, I... I think that abortion has destroyed our culture's view of human life in general. I think that's why we, another reason to be anti-abortion, and like you said, we know that it harms women and it kills a human life, and even just some of the psychological harms that it leaves on women has played into our mental health crisis in the nation too, because one in four women have gotten an abortion. Katie, can you correct? I'm second guessing that that's the right. Um, That used to be accurate as the overall number of abortions has gone down. That number has gone down. Is it one in um, or? It's not a great statistic because it doesn't take into effect. Like It doesn't account for um, the number, like multiples. So there are women who have had two, three, four abortions um, and it doesn't uh, account for that. So it overrepresents the overall number of women who have had an abortion because, like, if somebody's had three and you and I have had zero out of that sample size of three, it would say the average is one. And that's obviously not accurate. So it's a little bit of a hard yeah. <laughs> statistic hard. to use. Um, but certainly, you know, many, many people have been impacted, whether it's um, they themselves have had an abortion, their mom has had an abortion, and they feel that missing sibling. Um, yeah. You know, another family member has had an abortion, and they feel that missing relative. It's a friend who they drove. Um, you know, I've seen grown men break down crying, talking about an abortion they paid for before I was born. They've carried this grief and guilt for 40 years. So certainly, regardless of the lack of good statistics, um, we know that this is so pervasive and, and it's just hard to find anybody who hasn't been impacted. Yeah, and I mean, where I was going with that is, you know, we've had the psychological ramifications of abortion. If there's over 900,000 abortions every year just in the United States, then that's how many women and men and families are also hurting from abortion. 
and whether the woman's experiencing the psychological ramifications, which in medical textbooks says there's 119 psychological markers that go up for a woman after abortion for things like anxiety, depression, substance abuse, PTSD, and men who have been involved in that abortion can also experience those symptoms, but that's not to even mention people who are close to them, whether that's their parents or the their siblings, whoever knows about that abortion can have those psychological effects as well. And so I think even that has played into people's value of themselves and their mental health. But all in all, our culture and young people, we've grown up in a generation that has said that human life is disposable. We've grown up knowing that apparently our life was a choice, that it could have been ended or not. And I think that has huge ramifications on people valuing their own life and knowing their worth. And we see that in just our suicide rates, in our depression rates, and anxiety, and just people not knowing that they're valuable and worth it. And when I often when I'm having conversations on campuses and I'm talking to somebody for abortion, the conversation goes in a completely different direction at times. If you get down to does human life have value, that person's maybe even questioning if their own human life has value. So how could they believe that the preborn, it kind of is a circle. Like how can, if they don't think they're valuable as a human, how could they believe that that baby in the womb is valuable? And if they're being told that the baby in the womb isn't valuable, how can they believe that any human life is valuable? And so I think that plays in into how we're viewing ourselves and if young people know that themselves as a human matters as well. And oftentimes it's just walking them through, this is why human life matters, even looking to biology to know that your DNA is completely distinct from anyone else ever before you and anyone ever after you, meaning you're the only human being like yourself that will ever be. And that even, even our biology shows that value. Um, But even just if we can value human life at any point, we have to value human life at every point. That, that what you just said about um, the idea that, you know, all three of us grew up in a world where we were a choice and we were a choice that could have been made totally differently and we wouldn't be here. I've just been thinking about that so much since you said it and I'm so glad our audience gets to hear it. You know, for those of us who um, grow up in the Christian tradition and, and, you know, are believers we know that we don't have to do anything. God loves us. He has a plan for our life, and we have this inherent dignity. But, you know, AUL and Students for Life are secular organizations, and so I love how you speak to the biology of our life having value and being unique, distinct, and and irreplaceable. Now, I'm really confused, Katie and Sarah, because, you know, I had just put down the 2018 book that I had been given, Shout Your Abortion, by Amelia Bonow, Emily Noakes, and Lindy West. And this book had told me that abortion should be shouted. This collection of photos, essays, and creative work told me that abortion was being promoted in a variety of ways, through those making art, hosting comedy shows, creating abortion-positive clothing, 
altering billboards and starting conversations that supposedly had never happened before. I'm confused. So you're saying that that altering billboards and making abortion-positive clothing won't bring healing? (laughs) No, not at all. I think that, again, that's just another lie that women are being told, that they need to shout their abortion and be okay with it because most women aren't okay. And I think that's repressing the actual mental health crisis that they're going through, whether they have that PTSD symptoms or anxiety or depression, they're going to look at that book and those billboards and say, well, wow, I must be really messed up because I feel awful about my abortion and experiencing all these symptoms. And so then maybe they're going to cover it up and not seek the help that they need. And yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's, you know, I've, of course, saying this facetiously, right. but it's a real thing that this book is out there. These folks have been out there. You know, Katie, I remember you and I watched back uh, before COVID hit that incredible video, the Shout Your Abortion video, where, you know, s- some of these lead women are there with small children leading them through this stuff. I mean, it's like witnessing an alternate reality, um, you know, spiritual or church service or something, except instead of, you know, some dogma of, of Christianity or Judaism or Islam or something being conveyed, it's abortion propaganda to children. I mean, it's the most bizarre dystopian thing. When Students for Life members are tabling and they say, you know, like Sarah said, um, what do I need to know? Like, tell me about your experience. What are you going through? That might be the first time that that post-abortive woman has been asked that. Because if she has anything bad or negative to say, the industry doesn't want to hear it. And politicians don't want to hear it. All they want to hear is the coping mechanism that is the Shout Your Abortion book. So I think it's so important that we, you know, treat people with grace, even when, you know, they are coming at us with anger or fear, because we could be the only ones really asking them what they need and how we can help them. That's right. And these are sincere questions. These are not, you know, questions with the eye toward, say, putting somebody in a book to market it for a procedure to cover for a multi-billion dollar business. Uh, so, I mean, these these questions are, are not just um, urgently necessary, but they really are genuine. I mean, they, they, it's, it's, you know, uh, it, treating another person uh, as, as a good and as an end in themselves, right? Not a means to some other end. Uh, and so, you know, I really, really applaud the work that you're doing and um, helping show uh, the world, as much as fellow uh, college students, uh, what it means to consider the other person as neighbor, uh, to be gracious with one another, uh, and to help change hearts and minds by being neighborly, by being friendly, by being compassionate on a practical level. Uh, and it's, it's not surprising to me, uh, it's disappointing but not surprising, that you have some of the pushback you did, like what you'd written about in Students for Life in terms of that Texas rally concerning the heartbeat law. Um, but I think the, the extremism and the, the counter-protests are you know, a sign that you're winning, frankly, Sarah. Yeah, I think that's something that we really kept in mind. Even we just protested the the Women's March organization had abortion rallies all over the country, and we were just there protesting that as well a couple weeks ago. And it a lot of people showed up to those. You know, there was 3,500 people at the one here in Austin that I went to, and we had a smaller crowd that was going out and protesting it. 
and sometimes it can look like, well, are we in the majority if we're a smaller crowd? But then I remember this is their event that we're going to counter, and this is a response to our masses passing this heartbeat law and because we're winning. And so people are angry and getting out there because we are winning, and it's a response to they're seeing the culture changing, and they're we know through our Institute for Pro-Life Advancement that seven out of 10 millennials and Gen Z want to see limits on abortion. And that means we are in the majority and we are winning and people are angry because we're winning. And so it points to our success. That's right. Yeah. And and the winning is the winning for all Americans, right? right? This is the key point that he's made. This isn't winning for some narrow faction or the triumph of some special interest that wants to impose some new norm on everybody else at their expense and for the benefit of, of some small group. It's, it's about the common good. It's about what we need as Americans to thrive in our law and policy um, to the extent that our law and policy changes and shapes our culture, just meaning uh, our ability on an individual, familial, and community level to thrive or the barriers and constraints that will be put on our ability to thrive. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's what we're talking about at the end of the day. All these fights over Roe v. Wade and over, you know, the, the Texas heartbeat law and Dobbs and all these things all relate to this question of what kind of society do we want? And at the end of the day, the proposal from, you know, you, Sarah, and Students for Life and Americans Center for Life and what you're doing, Katie, with state lawmakers and federal lawmakers, the proposal is pretty darn modest, which is can't we help one another to succeed without perpetuating violence and self-harm as one of the supposedly acceptable options on the table? Can't we do more in all the other areas? Uh, and so I think this is one of the reasons it's inevitable that uh, we're going to see the light culturally on the reality of abortion. But I guess with that, uh, I'm sort of obligated to ask, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear both from you, Sarah and, and Katie, you know, as we look forward to the case of Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization, this uh, is, is a really big deal. Uh, it's going to be considered by the Supreme Court in oral arguments in December. Uh, we won't find out a decision until later in the spring or summer. We'll keep talking about it, of course, as it develops. But, you know, uh, I'm curious first, Sarah, are you seeing momentum on campus? And Katie, then, you know, what, how are you seeing state lawmakers uh, react and adapt to it as, uh, as it goes up to the Supreme Court? Yeah, we see tons of momentum of just getting ready for that because, again, we see this possibility that we can create a post-Roe America and we're getting ready for it. And we see this future that's anti-abortion. And so it's exciting and people are mobilizing more and excited about it. And we just launched this nationwide tour called See Me Now. And it's going all over the country to college campuses, and it's talking about the Dobbs case and how it's doing that is it showing the theme of see me now. So it's see me now in the womb, and we have actually virtual reality goggles that people watch a video of how a baby forms, and then it goes into they consent to watching a video by Dr. Leventino explaining abortion procedures. And after they watch that, we have panels with information of, you know, see me now, this baby in the womb who needs protected, but see me now, this woman hurting from abortion and what's hurt for her and see the woman who needs resources for that unplanned pregnancy or the family um, 
and also see me now as the pro-life activist and we are here and we aren't you know in the minority there's a majority of us and while media likes to try to silence us and not show us um we're here so see me now as we stand up for against abortion and for the right to human life and so this is going all over the country and we're able to talk about that. We're going to be doing a larger bus tour as well for leading up to the Dobbs case. And so it'll be our campus tour, but we'll also be driving from Jackson, Mississippi, where the case started, having a rally there, going to some college campuses with an ultrasound, mobile ultrasound unit. And we'll be having an event of showing um, a live ultrasound at Denver Capitals and campuses all the way from Jackson to D.C., And so we're just excited to see how this will change and pave the way for states to be able to pass more life-saving legislation. That's incredible. And Katie, do you think that this is going to be taken up on the state level? Yes, definitely. I am really hoping also I can come, I can see the See Me Now campaign here in Florida. I hope y'all are coming our way. But yes, you know, we have heard so many lawmakers are fired up. Um, Some are even thinking about doing special sessions if, you know, they don't think it's, um, you know, they don't want to wait until January or until next year for those states that are every other year sessions. Um, And, you know, Our consistent message with lawmakers is, you know, we are hoping and praying and arguing that the Supreme Court needs to give greater authority of those issues back to the states. So go out there and pass life-affirming laws like they're going to hand you everything. Like, what if you are in charge and you get to decide everything about this issue, what do you want the law to look like in your state? That's what you need to be preparing for right now. And one of the things that Texas did in SB8 that has gotten almost no attention, especially from the pro-abort side, is it significantly increased funding for pregnancy resource centers and alternatives to abortion. And that's something that a lot of state lawmakers are thinking about. Even those who are small governments see this as a necessary thing for the government to do to get out of the way so that nonprofits and religious organizations and Um, Groups like SFL can go out there, provide those resources, help women, and the state can partner with them without, you know, taking over that process because these nonprofits have been so successful over the last 30 years in helping women and families. So that is one of the big things that we are really encouraging lawmakers to do is to say, you know, if Roe is overturned next June, what does the law look like in our state? And how do we get where we want it to be by next June? Well, we're going to keep the momentum going and continue to advance the human right to life everywhere we can uh, because it's good for America and it's good for our future. I know I want my kids uh, to grow up in an America where life is protected, where it doesn't have to be uh, a question of, you know, what what did mom and dad decide for me? But just, you know, how did they make a good choice for all of us? Uh, and so, you know, with that, I, Sarah, I think uh, we're really grateful for everything you share with us today and for all the good work you're doing uh, in Texas and across the country, really, uh, through Students for Life. Um, something we do every show, Sarah, is our shot of gratitude. We just share something that we're grateful for. Um, Katie, we'll, we'll go with you first, uh, and then I'll go, and then, and then Sarah, you could go. Uh, Katie, what's something you're grateful for? 
Well, since the last time I've been on, my little nephew was born. So I'm very grateful that we have a healthy, happy baby. And my parents are very excited about their first grandchild. So I will get to hug him and see him at Thanksgiving. That is awesome. What a great thing to look forward to at Thanksgiving, especially. Congratulations. You know, I'm grateful for, uh, we, we were talking about the importance of, of different types of witness and different kinds of example. There's a great book, uh, a truly great book uh, out there called a Father, the Family Protector. And this is, I think, a particularly important book. Obviously, uh, it's intended for men, but I think it's intended for uh, not just current fathers. Uh, you know, I am not a current father, hope to be someday. But, um, you know, it's intended really for, for any, any men, I think, looking to, to be, you know, a, a part of a family someday, to be, to be a husband, to be a spouse, uh, and, and to be a father too. Um, but there's all sorts of fatherhood. Uh, there's, there's spiritual fatherhood. Uh, there's the, the ways in which you can be a father and, and evince those characteristics of, of masculinity and leadership and fatherly care and, and paternal concern uh, for, you know, your, your godchildren and for your, your you know, uh, nieces and nephews and all sorts of people. And so Father, the Family Protector is just a wonderful book uh, written by a guy who was a headmaster at a few different schools. Uh, and he wrote it because he said, you know, he realized that there were lots of good books, um, particularly for mothers, uh, basically answering some of the same questions of how to, uh, you know, navigate um, the, the unique role of, of motherhood. Um, but there weren't really as many, in his view, for fathers uh, and for men in general kind of wondering about how to express themselves. Um, you know, this, is, this was written before the kind of current um, talk and concern about, you know, things like toxic masculinity and whatnot. But I think it's actually more relevant now than ever for that reason. So it's a good book. It has a lot of timeless wisdom in it, and uh, especially if you're a guy out there. But regardless, if you know a guy uh, who could use a book like this, uh, it's worth checking out on Amazon, picking it up. It's called Father the Family Protector. So I'm grateful for encountering that and getting a chance to dig into it again. Sarah, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? Yeah, I'm just, this is going to be so cheesy, but I'm really thankful for you, Tom, and you, Katie. I was just thinking how all three <laughs> of us are young professionals, and we could be doing whatever we wanted in our career, but um, you two are fighting for the pre-born and for families and dedicating your life to save other lives, and so I'm just thankful that, you know, to know both of you and to have gotten to be in this fight with you two, and the same to just, I think it's inspiring to our students to see that and what they could do and inspiring them to be pro-life leaders, so I'm thankful just for that and, and for our students who will step into that too. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for this great conversation today on all the good work of Students for Life and the experiences that you've been having and, and kind of the vision you see for the future. So thanks again, Sarah. We appreciate talking with you. All right. If you enjoyed our conversation today, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen to the show, rate it and leave a review. If you have any comments or questions, just email us at life at AUL.org. If you want to advance pro-life legislation in your state, email us at life at AUL.org and check out all of our great resources on our website about how to advance the human right to life in culture and law and policy. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.